Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everyone. Good to see you all. Good to see you all. Good to worship with you this morning. Um, Today is uh, week two in our new series, Learning the Heartbeat of God. We shared our vision uh, in January for the whole year, what we feel like the Lord's calling us to, and it's together with one heart and mind drawing closer to God. And as we were going through it as a leadership team, as an eldership team, we kind of discovered this, this kind of journey in threes. You know, three is a very good Christian number. Um, and we want to start by talking about, well, what is God like? If we're going to draw close to him, how do we know his heart, what he's really like, his motivations, his desires, so that we can learn to trust him? And as we learn to trust God, then the second part comes along, which is learning to listen to the voice of God. What does he sound like when he speaks? How have each of us been uniquely crafted to hear his voice? And then the final piece, well, what do you do once God starts to speak to you? You know, maybe ignorance is bliss, you know, depending on your attitude towards God. But how do, we, how do we respond in obedience to what we feel like God is saying in our lives? And that's true for us as individuals, um, but that's true for us communally as well. And so last week, we, I, I began um, with this idea that not only is God with us, but God is for us. And that's the promise upon which all the other promises hang. And the story of Scripture is God uh, crafting a people and helping them to trust that he really is with them constantly and that he really is for them. I love even um, that we just, that, that um, Kaylee led us in that song that says, you delight in showing mercy, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, last week, we meditated on that, on Psalm 139, that's about opening ourselves up and allowing God to examine our anxieties. And you know, even this week we had, or this past weekend, we had our Enneagram workshop using that as a meditation. And, and it's scary, right? A lot of times it's scary to come before the Lord and say, show me what you see, because maybe even I can't see it. And a lot of times it's those kind of interactions with the Lord we begin to discover, do we trust him? Do we trust that when we're open to him, when we're vulnerable to him, uh, that he's not going to punish us for what he finds there? He's not going to wag his finger at us and shame us, but that God receives us into his embrace, and he begins that process of healing of delivering us from our sin, of helping us to become more authentically human the way that he has called us to be. And, and, and what I think is so important that I said last week at the beginning, I talked a lot about God. And when I say God, I mean the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I never want anybody to walk away and say, well, it was an okay sermon, but Jesus, or Jesus never talked about Ryan. Never, I, <laughs> never make that, never make that, uh, that, that contrast. Uh, Ryan never actually talked about Jesus. Whenever I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this week, what I want to do is I want to focus in specifically on how Jesus uh, came to reveal the heart of God to all creation. And that was his primary purpose for coming to earth, um, of living the life that he did, of dying on the cross and being raised again. So let's pray, and we're going to get right into this. Heavenly Father, we really do testify to that truth, um, that you are with us. And however we came in this morning, Lord, we might be at varying degrees of being aware that you're with us. Some of us, that's very easy for us to forget. 
Again, even like Kaylee was saying, it's, it's easy for us to look at the problems in our lives and forget to look at it through the lens of Jesus. But Holy Spirit, I pray that right now that you would um, light upon your dear ones here, that you would open our eyes to see what it looks like for you to be present to us, you to open our ears to hear your voice constantly speaking to us, welcoming us deeper into your embrace, that you would open our hearts to receive that truth that we can trust you. That's why we're here, God. We want to meet you. We want to see you face to face. And we want to be transformed by that encounter. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus is very tricky, even within the church, and this may come as a surprise to you. Several years ago, when I was leading a ministry school, I asked my students, what is the gospel? And one student who was a little overconfident from day one, but I worked him out of that pretty quick in about 14 weeks, he raised his hand and he said, Jesus came to die for my sins so I could go to heaven when I die. And I said, no. And he said, what? I said, well, let's take a look. And we looked at Matthew chapter 4, uh, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and it says, Jesus went about preaching the good news of the kingdom and saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And, what you, and maybe we, if we put it in our modern context, it's changed the way that you think because the reality of God is so close that you can actually touch it. And a lot of times what happens when we think about Jesus is we, reju- we reduce the person of Jesus to just being this function in God's plan that helps us to get to heaven. Or another way to say it is that we use Jesus to get what we want. And we depersonalize Jesus. Jesus becomes this tool that God used in order to save us and to get us to this thing called heaven thereafter. But there's actually a far bigger and more beautiful reality in what we see in the person of Jesus. And part of that was Jesus dying for our sins, creating this way for us to be in full relationship to God. But it it sits under this bigger reality that Jesus came to reveal to us what the heart of God is really like. And as I was thinking about the transition from what we spoke about last week to this, um, I was reminded of this line in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, and we all know Paul said amen. I don't know, maybe Paul was a good old-fashioned Pentecostal. He's like, amen, you know. And through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And all God's people said, yes. And then we said, what does that mean? And we said, I don't really know. That's a lot of very tricky words. But I love this idea. You know, I said, it's God's promise to be with us is like the promise upon which all the other promises hang throughout scripture, and in our personal lives. That God says, I'm with you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus promised us the same thing. The Holy Spirit promises us the same thing, to be with us. And all the other promises in our lives of the kind of life that God is inviting us to, how, what he's going to do in our lives, what he's going to do for us as a community, what he's doing for us as a species, all of it hinges upon that promise that God is going to be with us. And so what Paul is saying is, no matter how many promises God has made, and he says, and you know the scriptures, you know the stories, you know everything that God has promised to our ancestors, they are found, yes, in Christ. All the promises that God has ever promised find their fulfillment in Jesus. 
That Jesus wasn't just kind of this side thing that God was going to deal with this and then just continue on. So, no, everything that God promised was bundled up in the person of Jesus. And he goes on to say, so through him, through Jesus Christ, the amen is spoken by us. Which is to say that it's through Jesus, because Jesus has created the way for us to know God, to be in relationship with him. We say amen, which means so be it. It's essentially us saying yes. Whenever we say amen at the end of a prayer, we're saying I agree. Yes, absolutely. And when we, say, when we pray together and we say amen together, that's what we're saying. It's through Jesus. Yes, every promise that God has promised us has been fulfilled. And it's spoken to us by the glory of God. And if you remember last week, I said, when we start to understand God's constant loving presence to us, and we begin to define all of these Christian words, they start to find their fulfillment. What is glory? Glory is God's manifest presence. That Israel, as they're wandering through the desert, they go, where is God? And there's a pillar of fire. There's a, you know, a pillar of cloud. There's the smoke in the tabernacle. And they go, oh, there's God. That's the, they call it the Shekinah, the glory. That's, that's the presence of God. That's, what he, that's where he is. And so the glory of God is Jesus. When they say, where, where is God? We say, look at Jesus to reveal that he is the promise fulfilled. And when we begin to look at the full spectrum of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we begin to see that there's this element of kingdom and cross coming together to mark that fulfillment. Because some of us maybe grew up in church cultures that were all about the kingdom. They were about the life of Jesus, and they were about the ministry of Jesus. And, you know, it was really a shame that his ministry was cut short, because he could have really accomplished some fantastic things if he didn't get entangled with the Roman government, right? Sometimes we grow up like that. He's this wonderful teacher. He, he was really leading us in all this stuff. And he only got about three years. Gosh, what would have happened if he had another couple decades in him? But some of us grew up in, in church culture, perhaps, where it was just about the cross. That, yeah, Jesus came and he said and he did some things or whatever. But then at the end, he died for our sins. And that's all we really need to focus on. But when we recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to be with us, to be for us, to deliver us, then we see the life of Jesus, everything that he said, everything he did, spoke to the same degree of what God was doing on the cross itself and through the resurrection. And we find all of that together bundled up in who Jesus is. And this is why this is so important. Jesus takes the idea of God and gives it a living, breathing shape. I took a philosophy 101 class in college. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, my professor, probably the most intelligent person I've ever met, and she was pro-Iraq war, she was an anti-feminist, and she just blew my mind all the time, because it was like all my categories were, were blown up by this woman. She was phenomenal. And one of the things that we did, she said, we're going to take the next three weeks, and we're going to pick apart the idea of God. And I said, cool, let's do that. That sounds awesome. And so we went through all the ideas, and she says, and we're going to rebuild the idea of God on the other side. And I said, great. And we never got to that bit. <laughs> So that was kind of scary. But a lot of times what they're doing in philosophy is, is examining God as an idea, right? So maybe you know some of those classic arguments for the existence of God, Pascal's wager, or, you know, the unmoved mover, or the uncreated creator. You know, recently I bought um, a pair of scissors that were in this, like, plastic case, and you had to cut open the case to get the scissors. <laughs> So I'm like, where did those scissors come from and where did those scissors? And so there must have been like, you know, the uncut cutter and that's the proof of the existence of God, right? So there's all these philosophical ideas about God. And, and I think we're, we're okay with the idea of God as philosophy, right? 
God as an idea, God as this depersonalized thing, or I think what's very common in our postmodern uh, society is to say the God, uh, the universe, or whatever you want to call it. And it all kind of gets wrapped up into the same thing. But ir- and ironically, that move is made because a lot of people tend to avoid the idea of God. They're rather uncomfortable when you want to talk to them about God. A God as being personal or the God of the Bible or the God of Judaism or Christianity. But what I have found so often, even in people that don't claim a belief in God, is that they're absolutely captivated by the person of Jesus. You know, his, his words and his actions are so woven into our culture, even though we're kind of a post-Christian culture, that a lot of people are entranced by what they're discovering in Jesus. And I think the role for us as followers of Jesus today is to go out into the world and say, well, actually, we're the people who believe they're the same thing. That this idea of God that perhaps needs rescuing is found fully revealed in this person of Jesus that spoke and lived and breathed a couple thousand years ago. That our challenge is that Jesus was more than just a wisdom teacher. He's more than just a smart guy. He was more than just a revolutionary. He was actually God in the flesh. And this is how John decides to to start his gospel in speaking of who Jesus is. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word there in, in, uh, in Greek is he tabernacled with us. The tabernacle was the, the tent that the Israelites moved from place to place that was the house of God that eventually became the temple. And so he made his dwelling among us. I love uh, Eugene Peterson, the message says, uh, God came in flesh and, and uh, pitched his tent with us. He moved into the neighborhood. I love that idea, that image of God. He says, we have seen his glory again. Where's God? Oh, there he is. That's what God looks like. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And he goes on. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. And so God took on flesh. God put himself into a shape and then moved into the neighborhood and in Christ, and then came to reveal to us, this is what God is really like. And I hope you appreciate how bold a statement that is. No one has ever seen God, except for those who experience the reality of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And even in later on in the Gospel of John, in John 17, Jesus, this is the prayer that he's saying, is, Father, no one really knows you except for those whom I have revealed you to. And you see, for me, I love philosophy. I love ideas. And I find all of those arguments for the existence of God uh, really compelling. But as I studied those things, and even as I, as I taught them sometimes, I found they often fell short because as much as you can hone in on proving the existence of God through philosophy, there's no real character there. It, it, God continues to be this idea Uh, this helpful model that maybe explains the universe but doesn't explain things like love, like beauty, the things that really drive the human heart. So for me, it's the person of Jesus that took this idea of God and gave it a shape, 
that took the idea of God and made it a person, gave it a heart, gave it a mind. And not only that, but it actually took the idea of God from being something that I can think about to someone that I can actually engage with, that I can be in relationship with. And so God is less something that we just read about in a book, and it's more something, someone that we participate in. You know, as followers of Jesus, we need to be fascinated by the personhood of Jesus, the way he speaks, the way he acts, the way he thinks, the way he feels. Because the more that we hone in on examining Jesus like that, the more we can start thinking of God in those same terms. And this is what's so powerful about the coming of Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we begin and end by looking at Jesus. I want to phrase that in another way that might be a little bit controversial for some of you. If we do not see it in Jesus, we cannot say it about God. If you cannot say it about Jesus, you cannot say it about God. And a lot of times what's happened within, even within church culture, we've separated out the idea of God from Jesus. Maybe Jesus is a version of God. Maybe Jesus is God on a good day, right? And then there's this other version of God when God's on a bad day. And so God's kind of schizophrenic. But if we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's heart, that he reveals everything of what God is like, then we look to Jesus and everything that we say is true about Jesus is true about God. And the writers of the scriptures time and again are speaking like this. The, the writer of Hebrews in, in chapter 11 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Speaking of what we call the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And this is what, I think this is one of the most powerful lines in scripture. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus isn't a version of God. Jesus isn't a sliver of God. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. In the same way that light and heat shine from the sun, Jesus shines out from the heart of the Father. And he's the exact representation of his being. Jesus is exactly what God is really like. And so as Christians, Jesus is the highest authority that we appeal to in order to discover what God's heart is really like, higher even than the scriptures themselves. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In the past, we had, we had the stories, we had the history, we had the prophets, we had the poets, and, and they're all speaking about what God is like. But in these last days, God has said, this is the fullness of my heart, is in Christ Jesus. This is the best demonstration that I can give you of what I am really like. And we have to reconcile that as Christians, not as we are called Christians, not Biblians, because we follow Jesus. Because he is the best representation of what God is really like. One of my heroes, Brian Zahn, who's a pastor um, up in Missouri, he says that we don't get to use the Bible to disobey Jesus. The Bible is not our highest authority. The Bible exists to point us to Jesus. The Bible is not an end unto itself. 
And even Jesus demonstrated this in his own life. In Luke chapter 4, kind of at the beginning of his ministry, he goes into, uh, he goes into worship, and they recognize him as an amazing teacher. They hand him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah. And he begins to read, and he reads this, this messianic prophecy about this is the year of the Lord. He's going to release the captives and, and good news to the poor. And then he comes this line where he's supposed to say, and the day of vengeance of our God upon the, uh, upon the Gentiles. And he puts down the scroll without reading that last piece, and everybody says, oh my gosh, like, wow, he's got some authority. And then Jesus starts to teach, and he tells these stories from the Old Testament. He says, you know, you, you think that it's all about, like, God is, like, elevating the Israelites, and he is going to have this vengeance upon the Gentiles, but I want to tell you these stories about when God actually showed mercy to Gentiles, and that started to stir it up because that, that wasn't really how they were reading their Bible. That wasn't really how the Jews of Jesus' day wanted to hear the scripture. And it wasn't really how they wanted to understand the heart of God. They really liked the idea that God is for us and he's against our enemies. And so what do they try to do? They try to throw him off a cliff. Jesus' first sermon, and he, t- he almost gets thrown off a cliff. I've already gotten a couple of years into this and that hasn't happened yet, so maybe I need to go back to the uh, drawing board. But, you know, even Jesus demonstrated this, that I am the highest authority. And this does not mean that you diminish the role of Scripture in your journey of faith. What it does mean is that you elevate the person of Jesus and you take very seriously that Jesus is the highest authority that we appeal to, to understand the heart of God. So what does that mean for us? That means that we have to approach Jesus with open hands, with this expectation that he's going to speak to us, that he's going to act in our lives, and that becomes the highest authority that we appeal to. Just take a moment, just close your eyes, and I want you to think, what is your favorite Jesus story from the Gospels? You know, maybe it's an interaction with one of his disciples, or it's a story of his healing, or Maybe there's, a, there's a, a favorite saying from Jesus that you have, the Sermon on the Mount or one of his other words. Just hold that in your, in your heart and realize that's the face of God. Everything Jesus says, feels, thinks, that's what God is like. It's not an aside. It's not a cute little sideshow. It's not a version of God. That's really what it looks like when God comes in the flesh and begins to interact with his people, rescuing us, saving us, waking us up, and calling us into new life. And perhaps to even oversimplify it even more, that the best picture of what God is like is Jesus on the cross. The best picture of what God is like is Jesus on the cross. And again, this is a major theme in the early church in their writings as they're talking about how what we think authority is supposed to look like, what we think power is supposed to look like as human beings. We develop this idea of God that's kind of the power that we we wish that we had that we could put ourselves on the top of the heap and that we could be the ones that are strong and capable and powerful. 
And there's this part in when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, you know, the cross is foolishness to the world. The cross is foolishness to us in conventional wisdom because if we were to write the story of what God is supposed to look like and what his power is supposed to look like, we wouldn't put someone on a cross. We wouldn't show them executed by the empire. But he says it's foolishness to the world, but it's salvation to those of us who now believe. Because there's something when we look at Jesus on the cross that so beautifully demonstrates the true heart of God for all of us that speaks to an entirely different kind of authority, an entirely different kind of power, an entirely different way of saving the world. Because the authority of sacrificial love runs contrary to all of our notions of power. But God recognized that it was the only way to truly save us, to save his creation. And so when we see Jesus on the cross, we see the heart of God on display, a God who is willing to break himself open to rescue us from sin and death. We see a Jesus who, as they're hurling insults on him, turns to them and says, Father, God, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That is power. That is authority. That is the true heart of God. And so all of us, as followers of Jesus, we, we need to keep coming back to that picture of what God is really like when we start to wander, when we're trying to grow in intimacy with God and we feel ourselves afraid of what we see, when we feel afraid of being found out, when we feel like God is distant and disinterested or God is some sort of philosophical idea that maybe explains the world but doesn't speak anything to love. We need to keep coming back to that image of Jesus on the cross and saying that's the place that I begin and end in understanding the true heart of the Father. And so the beauty is in the Christian tradition, we have these symbols that lead us into that kind of understanding of what God is really like. And one of them, we, we sometimes call it Holy Communion. Sometimes we call it the Eucharist, which means the thanksgiving of the gifts. Sometimes we call it the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. All these different words that we use to speak about the table is this invitation to say, come and, come and see. Come and see what God is really like. Come and take into yourself the body and blood of Jesus as the best demonstration of God's heart for you and see what kind of power is present in that kind of sacrificial love. And do you encounter God there in ways that you perhaps never thought possible? So I'm really excited for us to come to the table today because my father is actually going to be leading us uh, to the table. Um, so dad, if you want to come forward. And we have this beautiful opportunity together to pray these prayers, to come to the table and to receive from the Father, the heart of the Father, our salvation, fully revealed to us in Christ Jesus. So I wanna invite you to stand and we're gonna pray our liturgy. just a couple of things about this prayer. Um, it's a, what we call versicle and response, call and response. Uh, that's very prominent in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, and in parts of the New Testament. 
and it's meant to engage our minds while we go through the prayer, and it's also meant for us to be able to affirm, say the Amen, basically, to the statements that follow. There are two main parts to this prayer, um, and the first is the what we call technically the anamnesis, which is the bringing to mind. So from the Gospels, Jesus at the Last Supper uh, took the bread, gave thanks for the bread, broke the bread, and gave the bread. And I will do those actions with my hands, and we're meant to pray that that would not, we would not just remember what Jesus did, but that it would become very present to us, that we are becoming the disciples around the table with him, that he is here, that he is the one who's really speaking to us and ministering to us. So it's not just an act of remembering with thanksgiving, it is being present uh, with God. And then the, the second part is called an epiclesis, which is a prayer for the Holy Spirit to come down on the bread and wine, but also to come down especially on us, that God would be in us, that he would bless us, heal us, work through us, inspire us, and uh, that that presence of God would continue with us even after uh, communal worship. So let us begin. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Father, Lord of all creation, we praise you for your goodness and your love. When we turned away, you did not reject us. You came to meet us in your Son, welcomed us as your children, and prepared a table where we might feast with you. In Christ, you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. He opened wide his Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, on the night before you died, you came to the table with your friends, and taking bread, you gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At the end of supper, you took the cup of wine, gave thanks, and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we bless you. You are the true vine. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. Holy Spirit, giver of life, come upon us now, and may this bread and this wine be to us the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we eat and drink these holy gifts, make us who know our need of grace one in Christ, our risen Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity, with your whole church throughout the world, we offer you this sacrifice of thanks and praise and lift our voice to join the song of heaven forever praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Thanks be to you, our God, for your gifts beyond words. 
Amen. you to come forward to either uh, side where you can receive the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and you can uh, take a piece of bread and you can dip it in the in the wine um, and uh, receive from him this has been the city beautiful church podcast To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at CityBeautifulCH. We hope you join us again soon.